2020s put anxiety center stage, but there are risk factors that can bring about depression too. What are they? And if you have them, what can you do? We'll answer that question in this week's episode of Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, the show for real talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. Hi, I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. I've been a therapist for 30 years. You're here because your family has some anxiety issues or you want to prevent them. I'm your co-host and Lynn's sister-in-law, Robin, and I'm here to ask your questions. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'll help you find your way. Hi, Robin. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm good. I'm eager for us to talk about today's topic. I think it's really important. We certainly have been talking a lot about anxiety in 2020 because, boy, 2020 has provided us a lot to be anxious about. But I think it's really important that we talk about all of the risk factors in the ways that 2020 is really exacerbating some depression, too. Or probably giving depression to people who might not have had it before. Absolutely. All of these factors that are coming into play that are certainly making us anxious and worried and uncertainty and all that kind of stuff. But remember, there's also a whole lot of disconnection and isolation and self-criticism. And and as we've talked about many times, anxiety and depression are pretty closely related. Anxiety tends to be a path into depression. And so I think it's time for us to really look and see how we're doing on that front as well. What do you think are the biggest risk factors for depression and how do they differ slightly or a lot from anxiety? We want to look at it from a pretty broad point of view because there are many, many things that put somebody at risk for developing depression. And also we should just say at the outset that it is really common and there is probably not a person listening that hasn't had some experience with it, either their own experience, dealing with a family member, a partner, a child, a friend. It's just so common that we really have to recognize, and and you and I are no strangers to this as well. Neither you nor I are exceptions to that. And I don't think anybody really is, to be honest. So we have to look at it from all of these perspectives, the biological perspective, Definitely, there are things that put us at risk, that psychological perspective. So that means sort of how you think and how you interact with your own thoughts and how you manage your own experiences. And then how do you relate to other people? The social perspective, huge in terms of your relationships, in terms of whether or not you feel connected, whether or not you feel like you belong. All of those things really work toward either helping or not helping when it comes to depression. So you say that there are biological risks or mm-hmm. or predispositions. What yeah. do those look like? Well, they don't really know. There's no depression gene, so they're just like there's no anxiety gene, but it seems as if just like with anxiety there are certain temperaments that put you at risk for anxiety disorders. There are probably an interplay of a lot of different genetic things that put you at risk for developing depression. So it's really just a combination of things. People like to say it's genetic. Well, people don't really know when they say that. It makes it sound like, you know, I passed on my depression gene to my kids. It doesn't work that way. It's probably just a huge combination. I think the mistake that people make or the misunderstanding that people make when we talk about biology is they think, oh, it's it's just based on chemicals or it's just based on genes. And that's not really an accurate way to look at it. Our biology has has something to do with this, just like it has something to do with anxiety. It has something to do with addiction. It's just not one thing. Your diet, for example, whether or not you're getting enough sleep, 
People who have sleep deprivation are more likely to be depressed. All those kinds of physical things that sort of come together. I've been thinking a lot about the biological disposition of anxiety after we did those episodes Mm -hmm. at the beginning of season two. Mm -hmm. I know it's so easy to want to talk about certain things being genetic, but that argument would be a lot more compelling if, in fact, you weren't raised around those people that you biologically inherited that genetic trait from, right? right? Because it's really so much about modeling, too. You Mm -hmm. You can't separate the two. It could just be that you're inheriting a pattern observed for your parents and their grandparents and their parents, and this is how they manage their emotions. I mean, it's always so interesting to me that we accept how much is transmitted from generation to generation in so many other ways. There's that great story about the the woman who comes into the family. She's watching them make a ham, and her mother-in-law cuts off the two ends of the ham. So she goes and finds grandma and says, Grandma, why do you cut off the ends of the ham. And grandma says, well, I don't know. Go ask great grandma. She's in Boasco. She's 110. So you go in and you say, great grandma, why do you cut off the ends of the ham? And great grandma says, oh, well, when I was first married, I didn't have a baking pan that was big enough to fit the ham in it. So I had to cut off the two ends so it would fit in the pan. And so there's all of these traditions that get passed down in families. And the way we think the way we respond, the way we interact with the world, those things get passed down too. And whether we're talking about anxiety or depression, if we throw in addiction in there too, there's enormous power in the way that we transmit things to family members. And it's just not always genetic. And you know, the comment that I always make when I'm talking in front of families in in terms of anxiety, and I say, so here's the deal with with you and your kids. And if it's nature, it's you. If it's nurture, it's you, right? And everyone laughs nervously. "Ah." But it's true. We can't separate those things out. And that's okay. We just have to acknowledge that. The thing about depression, from what I've followed from you, anxiety Mm -hmm. can really come about because they're ultimately... They're patterns of behavior and thought Mm -hmm. and patterns of response. With depression, there is something similar to that. But I think especially in light of 2020, life can happen in a way that suddenly a teenager who had a pretty active social life because of certain conditions that happened this year, all of a sudden that teenager is very isolated. Right. So here's a teen who didn't have those patterns before, but now is having them and is withdrawing more and more in their room and they're not getting enough social interaction. Or a woman has a new baby. She doesn't have any family. She doesn't know any friends. So she's like raising a newborn by herself. There are situations that come upon us that makes fertile ground for depression too. Absolutely. And I think that's a good way to think about it is that it's fertile ground, right? So when we're talking about risk factors, we're talking about the things that sometimes were in place before. And sometimes those risk factors come from the way that you were raised. They are long-term risk factors. And then something happens in your life that sort of exacerbates those things. Let's take the, the example of a teenager who really depends and really gets a lot of, I'll just say it's a girl, right? Gets a lot of her self-worth and a lot of her enjoyment and a lot of her pleasure in life from the interactions that she has with friends. And then this happens and that is taken away. And she doesn't know how to deal with that. She doesn't know how to talk herself through that. She doesn't know how to be hopeful that it'll come back. It just feels devastating to her that this part of her life that was so important is gone. So there you see where is the little crack that now has become a chasm. When when we're looking at risk factors before 2020, 
that maybe didn't really cause that much of a problem, patterns that were in place that really that didn't have all that much impact because the world was sort of going along and we sort of had figured it out. And when something changes dramatically, then oftentimes those patterns get exacerbated. So people who are really pessimistic, people who view the world through a negative lens, that's a risk factor for becoming depressed. You know how some people are like, oh, I always give him the benefit of the doubt. And there are other people who are always sort of like, oh, he's up to something. But you were sort of going along and you held, you held this way of thinking inside of you and you managed. And now this happens. And for whatever reason now, it gets amplified. You know what it makes me think of is, you know, our listeners and friends and family on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. When you have a global pandemic and when there is a shutdown and then there is a wildfire mm-hmm. and then you have a home or apartment that doesn't have air conditioning because it's not typically what you need and there is a heat wave mm-hmm. and it looks like Mars outside your window. Mm-hmm. Think of what that emotional experience was like to manage where you didn't get global and cynical and think what else is going to happen. And I think probably the difference of whether or not somebody becomes depressed about it or doesn't, it's not, oh, well, you were weaker, so you got depressed. It's just in that moment, how did that, for whatever reason, how did that depression sort of grab onto your vulnerability and really hang on tight? What you want to think about is what are the risk factors that you have that make you more susceptible to becoming depressed? Like, and if we think about, well, an anxiety, what are the risk factors that you have that make you more susceptible to being anxious? And one of the things I always say is you have a really good imagination that goes to that catastrophic place, or you were raised by somebody who always pointed out how badly things can go or made you believe that the world is a dangerous place. Those are risk factors. And so in this time, if you are a person who who tends to get more hopeless about things and then throw in there all these things to feel hopeless about, well, then of course it makes sense that that's going to sort of grab onto you. Or if you're somebody who has a really global view of things so that, you know, you say, well, everything always goes this way, or we shouldn't even bother to try and make a difference in our environment because then things catch on fire. Yeah, let's talk about global thinking for the people who don't know the term, but it's it's always using that big language like I always or you never. And so think when when things are going badly, in your environment and you're not feeling supported or you're not feeling connected, it really is easy to have that global view of things and really sort of pull you down. It's hard to feel hopeful in the middle of all this when we we don't really see an end in sight. And so a global person would say, you know what, this is just par for the course. Or isn't this just typical that as soon as things start going well for me, then the bottom falls out, right? They start using that global language, which just predicts for them that things are going to get bad and stay bad. And we've all hung around with people like that. You can be all Pollyanna and think that, but I'm a realist. People lose hope when they give up on the belief that things can get better, that's depression. Spoiler alert, the key to being mentally healthy is separating from your own thought process, giving space and being aware. I'm having this reaction. So what I hope people can take away is that say you are kind of a pessimist Mm -hmm. and you know it, but if you know you're a pessimist and 
some news comes and you're like, "Uh, I expected this. If you're aware that you're having your pessimist reaction, you can say, okay, pessimism, here it is. Now I'm going to consciously choose a different response. Right. With anxiety, we've talked about flexibility and problem solving. So with depression, what are the ways that we want to respond to that to move us through? We know that people who struggle with depression are usually not so great at problem solving. So they feel stuck, right? So remember, depression is a, is a place of feeling hopeless and feeling helpless and feeling stuck. And so if you don't have good problem-solving skills, then you stay there. Just like with anxiety, lousy problem-solving skills are really, unfortunately, predictive of people getting and staying depressed. Another thing is really feeling that, you know, I talk a lot about that permanent view of oneself, that things are not going to change, that you can't change. This is why I go on such a rant about talking to teenagers and saying, oh, you have this disease called depression. Being able to recognize how changeable and malleable not only can your situation be, but also the way that you talk about your situation, think about your situation, interact with other people about your situation. That's also the opposite of of depression. And this idea that things that have happened in the past don't define who you are now, nor do they necessarily define who you are going to be. When you hear me talk about like developing problem solving skills and being able to recognize that you are malleable and being able to recognize that your past doesn't dictate what you can do in the future, that you are changeable, all of that language is language, the same language that I use with anxiety is that things are changeable and that If you get caught in this place of sort of, oh, well, nothing matters, right? There's that global, nothing matters. Or if you get caught in this place of sort of being a victim of your circumstances, and it doesn't mean that some people don't have horrible circumstances that they need to overcome. But if we're talking about being able to move yourself out of depression, those are the things that we're going to pay attention to. And those are the things that we're going to target. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook. You can add events directly using the touchscreen or with the free Skylight mobile app. Updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. 
They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up, so order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. You know when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you? Well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. So that sense of being a victim, I think, is probably a big piece of it, right? Michael Yapko, who is, you know, as I say his name all the time because he's been so helpful to me, but he said, nobody overcomes depression by declaring themselves a victim. That's that it doesn't work because uh, uh, when, when you say, oh, well, this happened to me and there's nothing I can do about it. The other thing, too, to remember is that when we're helping people with depression, having them be actively involved, having them do stuff, having them take steps and having them engage, that's the opposite of depression. That's what we want to really emphasize. I mean, you know, if we if we think of the most heartbreaking extreme of when people choose to take their own lives because they're so depressed, they come to the conclusion that nothing can change. And, you know, as we often say to young people, you choose a permanent solution to a temporary problem. 
not being able to to see your way out of something. That's when depression is so dangerous and when we really need to step in and really go after these patterns and these beliefs that are so debilitating. When I think of the people in my life that have suffered from depression, the idea of agency and victimization, that really resonates with me. Mm -hmm. I can think of a couple of examples where when you feel like there is no hope, I get it. Mm -hmm. I did have friends who committed suicide, so I understand that. Mm -hmm. But there are people who live with depression a huge chunk of their lives. A huge chunk. How does does one say, okay, I get it. I, I feel like I've been a victim. And is there a way to stop. This is something, as we've said, that is modeled. You're raised by people who consistently blame other people for their own circumstances. If you are raised by people who are afraid to hope or take chances, who want to play it safe, and they'll they'll say, uh, you know, well, there's, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try because it just, it's just gonna be more disappointing if it doesn't happen. If you are raised in that environment, you take that mindset with you into your adult problems. The first thing is to be able to sort of look and see, okay, so are are these patterns familiar to me and where did they come from? You don't have to spend an enormous amount of time talking about that, but it is helpful to sort of unlock that a little bit. And who showed me that this is the way that you should live in the world? And then what is enormously helpful is that you begin to take the risk of letting go of that pattern and experimenting with thinking about it in a different way. And so, all right, well, what would it be like if you took a little bit of a chance? What would it be like if you put yourself out there? What would it be like if you applied for a job, but you didn't get it? Could you handle that? So people become very risk averse when they're depressed because they say, oh, I just can't handle one more disappointment. And so they just stay in the same place. So a lot of it has to do with having somebody, and it could be a family member, it could be a therapist, but somebody who will help you take those concrete steps toward action and really pushing back against those patterns that you begin to recognize. How does that thinking pattern show up in so many areas of your life and shut you down? It's it's okay to ask for help. This sort of brings up that social component to it is that a lot of times when people are depressed, they're not asking for help or they're not letting people know what's going on inside of them because they feel embarrassed or they feel alone or they feel like nobody would understand, right? That's a global statement. They don't benefit from somebody saying, let me show you the steps that you can take that actually might make the hours of 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. easier for you when you have a two-year-old because I've done it a few times. Let me show you. And being able to feel connected and supported by people who will show you things to do is really, really helpful. But when you're depressed, you don't reach out. Yeah, everyone has a couple of friends who they never hear from. And you know, because they disappear, Mm -hmm. you know they're not doing well. I have one of those friends. I do too. Yeah, it's such a human nature to want to hide instead of reach out. So you can see how so many of these things feed on each other, right? And it just becomes this big snowball going down a hill because you're feeling really miserable. So you start beating yourself up. You start feeling a lot of shame. So you don't share it with people. One of my good friends who's a therapist talks openly about a very difficult depression that she had, you know, later in life. And she talks about what she did and the help she got and how hard it was to admit it as this pretty famous therapist, 
but how important other people were to her to be able to coach her, to be able to encourage her, to be able to empathize with her. When you are depressed, isolation is doing the disorder, right? Cutting off your supports is doing the disorder, but it's just so tempting to do that. Yeah, you say doing the disorder, but say what that means. That means that you're actually making things worse by doing what you think you should do or doing what might feel intuitive to you at the time, but actually is doing the very things that make the depression worse or doing the very things that make the anxiety worse. So when we talk about doing the disorder, helping kids avoid things that they're anxious about actually makes the anxiety stronger. Isolating because you feel ashamed that you're depressed actually makes you more depressed because the more isolated and alone you are with your thoughts, the more hopeless and sad and disconnected that you become. When I think of the toughest chapter in my life, it's that my mom died while I was pregnant with my second child. Mm -hmm. So I gave birth and I was a new mom and I was still grieving. And I think that that was definitely my experience with depression or postpartum mm -hmm. depression. But the, the word that I would say looking back on that chapter was just like an endless sense of overwhelm. And global language is the language of being overwhelmed. When you use those big words, so if you if you look at your messy house and say, I'll never get this done. Or if you're feeling alone and you say, no one will ever want me, or no one will ever want to be my friend, or nobody understands me, or everybody's doing things better than I am, those global words, that's the language of being overwhelmed. And so we, we always look at sort of what's the opposite of that. And the opposite of global language is breaking things down into parts so when you're feeling overwhelmed, a few things happen. One is that when you look around, you're just taking it all in at once. I think also, particularly for women, when you're feeling overwhelmed, what follows quickly on the heels of being overwhelmed is just the incredible self-criticism that you should be able to handle this. And you start doing that social comparison that everybody else is doing better than you are. And again, when we start talking about this and, and genuinely and authentically sharing the struggles we're having, we realize that we're not alone in this. But overwhelmed is, I don't know where to start. Nothing that I do will make a difference. I can't get myself out of this. These feelings will never go away. Those are all global words, right? I'll never feel better. When your mom died, you probably had a feeling of like, I will, I will never be able to get out from under the pain that I'm feeling. That's all of that global language. So you need somebody to be the voice of hope. If you can't be the voice of hope for yourself in that moment, you need somebody to say to you, you will feel better. We will get this done. You will be able to manage this. You did that for me the other day. You sent me a text that said in all caps, you can do it. And so being able to recognize that when you're overwhelmed, you often need somebody to just say, let's take it a step at a time. Let's just figure this out. Or somebody who's been through it to say, this is really hard. If you do these things, you will, you will slowly but surely find your way out of what feels so overwhelming right now. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. You know, I talk to moms who feel overwhelmed all the time, particularly now. I say to them, of course you're feeling overwhelmed because you've got 17 things that you have to handle right now. What is something that you can do 
that you can check off your list? And also, can we put the self-criticism aside for a little bit? Because as you're trying to manage these 17 things, you don't need a drill sergeant yelling in your ear telling you that you're incompetent. So let's recognize that pattern too. There's so many things that we can do to just sort of step back and recognize the patterns that we fall into that sometimes we don't even recognize. So as we think about 2020 and we think about either the parents or the teenagers starting Mm -hmm. to slip into these patterns, I do think that it's really smart to figure out how to proactively create connection and opportunities. I had a month where the pandemic just felt harder on me than Mm -hmm. other months. And I could tell like, this is going to be something I have to figure out. Mm -hmm. So earlier in the summer, for me, that's when it sort of all hit. Proactively reached out to as many friends of mine as I could Mm -hmm. and people that I hadn't spoken to in years. Mm -hmm. I picked up the phone and and because you've always described depression and anxiety as being internal disorders. If I'm starting to feel kind of blue about the pandemic and the world, I just reach out to friends and I've avoided, you know, going down any kind of depressive cycle. If you can identify what your risk factors are, if you can identify that you tend to be self-critical or that you tend to be pessimistic or that you are a a, a blamer, that's another one because that's a real victim role, right? It's not my fault. It's your fault. It also doesn't do good things for your relationships. If you can identify those patterns, if you're somebody who shuts down, if you're somebody who isolates when you're feeling blue about something, if you have a hard time letting people know how you feel, then you begin to consciously work on those things and do the opposite. You are being preventative. And here's the the great thing about this too. You are showing your kids how to do it. If you can have your kids hear you say, you know what, I'm feeling overwhelmed right now, but I'm just going to take it a step at a time. Or, oh my gosh, I am in such a bad mood because this has just been so hard, but I'm going to figure out what I need to do to lift my spirits a little bit. If you can talk out loud and show your kids that their moods aren't permanent, that, you know, as Michael says, everybody is susceptible to depression because everybody has moods. And if you can show your kids how it is that we can shift out of these patterns, that's how generationally we stop passing it on to kids. It's just so important. It's not that hard. You don't have to do it every day. You don't have to be Mary Poppins. You don't have to be the perfect mom, the perfect dad. You just have to show them that there are different ways to view circumstances. And it makes a big difference. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think 
that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast. So Lynn, I have a listener question for you now. Okay. Here's a mother with a 13-year-old, and she's concerned about depression. How do you know when your 13-year-old daughter is not just a moody teenager, but there's something bigger going on? She sought treatment for social anxiety in the past, but had made progress. But since COVID, she's become more withdrawn, eating less, and just not interested in going anywhere. School is the exception, and she enjoys going and learning and doing the work. She's also at a new school this year, and she started her period. She says she's fine, but how does one know if she really is, or if it's just hormones and is just becoming more independent or if it's more serious like depression. People say to me all the time, you know, is this just normal teenage stuff? Based on what this mom is saying, some of this really is normal teenage stuff, particularly the fact that she is doing well in school and she enjoys going to school. So one of the things we pay attention to is are our kids avoiding or not participating in things that developmentally or normally they should be participating in or that they used to participate in and used to enjoy and now they're sort of knocking things off the list. So the fact that she is going to school, that she enjoys going, she's learning, she's doing her work, this means that we don't have to be real concerned about depression because that really does impact one's engagement in things. And not always, but if she is enjoying it, if she's enthusiastic about it, if you feel like her brain is working and she's learning things, that's all really a good sign. When she turns 13, right? So she got her period. She's really starting to move into that place where she wants to have more independence from you. The thing I'd pay attention to mom is that you say she's become more withdrawn and not interested in going anywhere. I think that you want to pay attention to that because she has a history of social anxiety and you may want to just sort of revisit that a little bit with her or even in your own thinking. Remember what she learned in therapy. Remember the things that were important that you do and that she does so that you're making sure that she is having practice and hopefully enjoying social contact. Social isolation, loneliness and isolation are big red flags that we want to pay attention to. You want to make sure that she's still engaging in activities that she finds fun with other people. 
If she isn't engaging in activities with you, so when she's home, if she's sort of in her room and she doesn't really want to participate in family things as much, but she's still doing other things with school and with friends, then that's really normal. And also remember too, that it is a time when you're looking for her to develop her autonomy. So being able to have space from you, being able to manage things on her own, handling her schoolwork independently, all of those are great things, just make sure that you're you're paying attention to that social connection part. If my little feelers were going up, that's what I would be paying attention to. If that's a concern for you, I would just talk to her about it. And I would say, you know, this has been a tricky time and I know that social stuff makes you anxious and I know you've done really well with that in the past. How can we make sure that we're not letting that sort of go by the wayside? How can we make sure, just like if you were getting back to playing the piano, how can we make sure that your fingers are nimble and that you're playing your scales? How can we make sure that we keep you connected to things that you enjoy and people you enjoy being around? I'm a mom of a teenage daughter, and one of the things around 13 and 12, they do change. And you, at first, there's no way that a mom won't take it personally Mm -hmm. as, as a daughter sort of transitions with different emotional responses and unwillingness to communicate in the same way. You know, they're not a kid anymore. Right. But the, the trick that I learned that this is going to vary by each child is it's where can you show up where they're more willing to show up? Mm -hmm. So for example, I don't know if this is a universal thing, but you know, my kids never want to go to bed at bedtime, right? Nobody ever wants to go to bed at bedtime. Yeah. Just when it was time to go to bed and lights out. A daughter who would never talk to me during the evening about anything going on, all of a sudden has a lot to say to me Mm -hmm. at that point because she doesn't want to go to bed. Mm -hmm. So I would be flexible about bedtime once in a while to just have that opportunity for her to want to stay up late and tell me things. But she never wanted to communicate that on my schedule at five o'clock in the afternoon. That was something that helped me adapt to this new chapter in parenting. Finding nice ways to still connect, but it just won't happen on terms that you can necessarily control. And I think that is such good advice because you were allowing her to sort of come to you. And one of the things that teenagers are really put off by having, I have boys, but nonetheless, they went through a period of this too, is sort of us coming to them and wanting to have sort of a really earnest conversation. Oh and yeah, that always goes really yeah, well. Yeah, that goes so well, doesn't it? Like <laughs> They love it. It's not like some Sometimes you don't have to have those conversations, but I think that it's such a good advice, Robin, is to just look for those opportunities to connect and don't don't think that every moment of connection or every conversation that you have to have with your teenager has to be about something meaningful. My wonderful friend, Jeff, who did that, gathered that data about what his teenage clients wanted and what they came back and said is that even though we pretend we don't really want to have any contact with you. We really like that you keep showing up and we really like that you kind of ask us questions and that you check in with us. And then the other thing too, just for, for everybody is when should you be concerned, right? When, when, when is it depression? When is it something that you really need to pay attention to? So rule number one is if your child comes to you and says, I'm really having a hard time and I think I need some help or I think I need to talk to somebody that 
thing you do not want to do is to say, oh, you know what? I don't think it's that bad. Or I think you're overreacting or, right? Have a conversation with them right then. Be really careful not to try and reassure them in a dismissive way because that's our instinct. Like, oh, you'll be fine. It's not that bad. But what you really want to pay attention to is if they start isolating even more, you do want to look for changes in appetite. Although changes in appetite in a 13-year-old girl So unless it's pretty severe, I wouldn't worry about that too much, but you want to look for um, issues with sleep. So if she's not sleeping like she used to, if she's looking like she's tired, if she's got dark circles under her eyes, if you notice her being more lethargic and talking about feeling fatigued, the other way that depression can come out, which again is a little confusing, but the other way depression can come out in younger people is a lot of irritability, but of course, Irritability in a 13-year-old girl is normal too, but it has to be pretty significant. And I pay a lot of attention to school and I ask how she is around other people. So say she's around, and again, with COVID, it's hard. Say there are other relatives that she hangs around with and they're like, no, she's great when she's here. Again, it doesn't it makes you feel like, oh gosh, she saves this for me. But that's actually a good sign. So we want to look for significant changes in sleep, in appetite, in irritability, in being able to concentrate, focus, get work done if school grades start to drop. If she talks to you about the fact that she doesn't feel like herself, those are a lot of the warning signs that you want to pay attention to. So join the Fluster Clucks Facebook group so that you have an opportunity to ask Lynn your question for an upcoming episode. And that's Fluster Clucks with an X. If you're listening to this, you know, maybe you're acknowledging it and maybe you've suffered with this for a long time and you felt sort of like, well, nothing will make it better or there's nothing I can do. You are not correct about that. This is absolutely treatable. You can get professional help. We'll put some really good resources for you in the show notes as well, but do not suffer in silence with this. So let somebody know that maybe you've been feeling this way and talk to somebody about it. Doesn't have to even be a professional. It may go there, but talk to somebody about it. Do not be alone in this. And the other thing too is if you're if you're listening to this and you're thinking, gosh, she's kind of describing me. I don't feel like I'm depressed, but I certainly am pessimistic. Just pay attention to those patterns. Pay attention to your malleability versus your rigidity. Pay attention to whether or not you throw out global language a lot and you come to these big conclusions about things. Pay attention to whether or not you do get caught up in the victim role, right? That there's nothing you can do. And see if you can just play around with using different language. You know, if if you are a blamer, how can you pull that back so that you're not continuing to perpetuate that pattern in your family. Give us a great blamer example. I'll give you a minor example. So when a blamer can't find something, they immediately accuse. They say, who took my whatever? A blamer also is that, say that somebody shows up late for something. The way, one of the tells of a blamer is that they never apologize. A blamer doesn't own it. A blamer doesn't say, I'm sorry. A blamer doesn't say, oh gosh, I can't believe I did that Again, that's something I do all the time. A blamer says, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. And a blamer is looking to pin it on somebody else. They're not fun to be around. (laughs) I'm just laughing because I don't think of myself as a blamer and I absolutely apologize for things. Yeah. No, but every mom is like, 
where, you know, where is my spatula? Yeah. My spatula was in the dishwasher and now it's gone missing. Right. So a blamer just, that, that's their that's their knee-jerk response. They don't even look for it first. They just say, who took my? Am I allowed to blame my husband or kids if after I've looked for it and can't find it? Yes, you are. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay You're then totally allowed. My husband is terrible for looking at, at for uh, looking for things. I have the best line for you. Okay, what is it? When her husband says, "Honey, I can't find the such and such," she says, "Did you look or did you man look?" <laughs> well, we call it we call it my my husband's first name is Crawford. We call it Crawford looking. One time, he opened the refrigerator and said, "Where's the milk?" Oh my like, god, it's yeah, in there, yeah. Right. So, mm-hmm. hunting and gathering not so impressive. Right? Yeah. Like in I order know. to hunt, you might have to pry apart two jars yeah. to see what's behind I them. I know. I know. Well, and, and so the difference between sort of man looking and blaming is man looking is sort of like, I can't find it. And there's sort of that, there's that, you know, like helplessness. But a blamer is they can't find it and it's because somebody did them wrong. Right? right? Like who took my, so there's a difference between like, I can't find the spatula and who took my spatula? What what would I do with yeah? It's under my pillow. I <laughs> I used it to put my shoes on. So so the the blaming the blaming is more sort of accusatory, and it's also dodging any responsibility. I've always wondered if this is an issue with my married lesbian friends. Yeah, does one become the person who finds everything, and the other one adapt the helplessness? Yeah, I mean that is an interesting thing. Is is it a dynamic that happens in a couple? Then what happens when it's two women, or what happens when it's two men? It's an interesting question. What if there's a bunch of people that work in an office? And what if they just happen to be all Y chromosomes? Do they all just sit around and be like, we can't find it? I don't think so. Seriously, if you're a listener and you have a male partner living in your house who's like, found it, I'm impressed. Yeah, me too. Join the Flusterclux Facebook group so that you can ask your question on a future episode. Bye, Lynn. Bye, Robin. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.